Hello, you're listening to Film Greys. I'm Tolerable Emmett. I'm Sam the Shake Story. Nice. We're from the rock and roll band Phil Graves, and we're here once again to talk about cinema. Mm. There's about ten days left of the year 90, of the year 2021, <laughs> so you don't know that we had to come back and conclude our series on the films of 1921, yeah, and introduce our series on the films in 1922, which will be coming just round the corner. <laughs> um, we are they're obviously all silent films, but these are the this is the Anglophone edition. We're going to be speaking English. We're going to be talking about films with. <laughs> English intertitles, but there's no. We're not. We're not going to talk about a single film from England. No, it's a, it's a terrible nation for filmmaking, and they don't really have anything. There's that one how to start a cinema club thing on um, the BFI YouTube, which is a bit of a laugh, but it's not. Doesn't really stand up to the analytical weight of the Phil Graves cinematic <laughs> uh, process. I really disagree. That was. Re- Fuck it. I actually want to talk about that for a minute now because I totally it's forgot good, about it? it. Yeah, that's actually really funny. And it provides a lot of insights into like all aspects of cinema exhibition and, you know, film yeah. culture in that period. It's like a series of vignettes about um, the operation and experience of going to the cinema. Um, and there's one about like serials and it's like, you know, previous 49 parts or whatever. And mm. yeah. And it's animated as well. We're not really going to talk about many animations today, although... We are going to talk about some cartoonishly stupid films, though. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) For sure. Um, Okay, that's England in 1920. (laughs) For sure. Yeah, let's go to to America then. Um, I thought it could be interesting to start by looking at, like, some of the big films that were imported into America... At this mm. period, because obviously there's so much going on in America, we're going to talk about some very like extremely famous to this day films. Mm. Um, but films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Ernst Lubitsch's Anne Berlin film, uh, released under the name Deception, I think, mm-hmm. Paul Wagner's The Golem, and Abel Gontz's Jacuzzi all had their US premieres in this year. being exposed to a bit of continental film culture i feel like we sort of took a lot of it for granted when we were looking at like films from you know czechoslovakia Mm. or whatever in 1921 where i think those were literally my favorite favorite ones but yeah the americans had a lot of catching up to do i think i would say it would take them about 20 years to catch up with like Lerbier and, and mm. stuff like that. Sure. You know, or even uh, just the late 20s sort of... when they started bringing in more like emigre German directors. Mm. But yeah, they really weren't at that point yet. There was nothing avant garde in America at this time. Although maybe we can quickly talk about Manhattan now. Sure. Um, I'm just going to bring in one thing really quickly. There is um, there's a good story in The Parade's Gone By by Kevin Brownlow, but that we'll be referring to a lot mm. on this episode of D.W. Griffith and the Gish twins uh, going to see Abel Gonsi's J'accuse in like the Philharmonia or some massive concert hall in New York. Yeah. And they'd, they'd, they'd start in the wake of the awful birth of a nation. Um, they'd started to like screen films in concert halls and stuff like that and take them to like much bigger rooms, right? And Abel Gonsi was heartbroken that D.W. Griffith and the Gish twins walked out of uh, the screening of J'accuse because the awful birth of a nation had been such an influence <laughs> on his on his filmmaking practice and intolerance the film he made the year after that is just inescapable when you mm. read Podovkin and uh, Kevin Brownlow and stuff mm-hmm. like that 
uh, even though it's a massive flop it's considered the most influential film of the silent era but yeah Gons was really influenced by uh griffith and griffith walked out about 10 minutes into jacuz and then he got a telegram from him the next day saying like oh I only walked out of your film because I realized we had to completely change our approach to doing Orphans <laughs> of the Storm, his anti-Bolshevik 1921 uh, film about the French Revolution. But... In the light of seeing... <laughs> so that just goes to show how, you know, if Americans don't really tend to watch foreign movies then as of today, but also how, you know, how large the discrepancy was across the Atlantic with filmmaking at this time. Mm, for sure. Um... Yeah, now I don't know whether to talk about Manhattan or Orphans oh, of the yeah, Storm. Sorry. I really want to drop this um, Orphans of the Storm uh, into title. I guess it's more of a title card because it comes like right at the beginning. But yeah, it's a drama about the French Revolution and it's so explicit in its political uh, intention mm. that it's actually mind-blowing. I'm just going to read it. The lesson, it says, this is like 10 seconds into it. The French Revolution rightly overthrew a bad government, but we in America should be careful lest we with a good government mistake fanatics for leaders and exchange our decent law and order for anarchy and Bolshevism. And it's like, What's whoa. <laughs> by, by voting for Upton Sinclair or whatever. Um, it's... That's crazy to me. It's, a, <clears throat> I guess, you know, all historical films, whenever they're made, are more about the time that they're made than the time they represent, right? Hmm. And it's it's instructive to see how shook someone like uh, D.W. Griffith, the son of a Confederate general, was of the proletariat. Sure. Um, and what was going on in Russia at the time and compelled him to make his most expensive production since Intolerance five years previously um to totally misrepresent the french revolution in a way that is uh jaw-dropping to my to my eyes and also just unreadable because i mean we're going to talk about some films with loads of intertitles and some with barely any this one was about half intertitles and it's the most <laughs> florid it's like the book in red dead that you read where everyone says like instead of they said it says they ejaculated every time <laughs> or whatever it's literally that that level of floridity Okay, I need to cite another 1921 film that was like the most e egregious example of this for me. It's a Wallace Worsley Lon Chaney collaboration. So um, they made the Hunchback of Notre Dame film that we saw in the church, like uh, back at, Ooh, around Halloween. The scary, the yeah, scary yeah, Halloween so viewing. Um, but this film was extraordinarily dead. I'm going to try not yeah. to call too many films extraordinarily dead today. But... Um, yeah, so it was about this, like, secret society and they'd, like, really draw out their sentences with these, like, euphemisms, right? So it would be, like, which one among us will, uh, yada yada, to to the man who has, like, lived too long oh and God. shit like this. And it's like, ugh. Also, it has some... from the Latin or something. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> It had some of the least imaginative camera work I've watched in any of these films as well, where they're, yeah, as I said, they're like a society of like, um, a secret society of like, mm. like assassins or whatever. And the the title of the film refers to like, one of them gets dealt the ace of hearts and then they get right. to carry out the assassination. And the way it shows this is like literally just like round the table so slowly, like... 
static overhead camera and I was like oh is it that one no there was literally no like editing or like imaginative framing and it went on it felt like it went on for like five minutes fuck uh oh, that man. film was so dead anyway well it's, it's good high, to start on the real low point points drama <laughs> yeah. it's good to start on the real low points because there is a lot of uh stuff to be appreciated that was being shot on celluloid in 1921 in America Right. Sure. I, you, look, Orphans of the Storm, despite being an ex- extremely reactionary film, is an impressive piece of filmmaking for like when it's from sure. the scale of the crowd scenes, um, even if it's depicting um, a, another intertitle from the middle of the film, drunk with their new freedom, the riffraff of the city dance no. to Carmagnol. <laughs> That unexplainable, wild expression of the mob madness. <laughs> but it is still Holy a shit. remarkable film, including like the close-ups and like the <laughs> sort of detailed camera work, as well as these like big like sort of crowd scenes in which the people are the bad guys. And he does he does the nice cross cutting, you know. If you compare yeah. it to um, Ildiko Il and Yeti's My Twentieth Century, they're very similar uh very similar plots but i think the problem with that is that when you watch a griffith film um he signs his name on every one of the intertitles right <laughs> so like sake. you his name he's like he self-ascribes the quote it says like whatever whatever this da, 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 drunk with riffraff drunk with their new freedom hyphen dw griffith at the end right um something he'd take even further i'm just gonna just want to get griffith out of the way now yeah um, yeah but the film that he made, which was a lot more interesting and innovative, um, does not show up on the 10 biggest or the nine biggest box office <laughs> hits of 1921 on Wikipedia. That was uh, Dream Street that saw him returning mm. to the Limehouse set um, that he filmed Broken Blossoms on a couple of years before, which is a brilliant film. Yeah, it's set in Limehouse. It's very misty, you know, again, like, you know, the orphans. But this film is really significant for being one of the first talking pictures about seven years before Al Jolson and the jazz singer destroyed the integrity (laughs) of the mise-en-scene and turned cinema into a record of some sort. Um, This this is a system called Vita Kino, which I'd only Mm. discovered about a week ago doing the research for this podcast, um, where they would play a record in cinema. I mean, they only had about eight cinemas with sound systems that were equipped to screen this but um yeah you hear the voice of dw griffith narrating his film dream street uh the copy on youtube doesn't have this but it's mad to think where like a few years previous when thomas edison was still alive all film innovation was so litigated Mm. and you know as i said in the previous episode like was the reason why films are made in hollywood because it's so far away from his lawyers um but once he passed away there's a lot more um, there was almost too much innovation in the cinema to the point where people would come up with this sort of stuff D-max. and you don't even know about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. D-box. 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 Memoria and <laughs> D-box coming in two weeks. Come on. Anyway, forgive me. You didn't see Dream Street, did you? No, I didn't catch that one. Um, however, that does provide me with a nice little transition to a film that I know you really liked from 1921. Henry King, director of The Gunfighter, some 30 years later or whatever, his Tolerable David, starring Richard Bartlemess, 
who plays the Chinese guy in Broken Blossoms. Is that correct? It does indeed. A beautiful <laughs> performance. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. As he, he plays the most tolerable man in the world. <laughs> David, you're not a man, but you sure are tolerable. This sort of reminded me of the sort of Scandi, like Nobel Prize sort of ones Definitely. that we looked at Definitely. earlier in the year. Um, in that it's like very uh, rural. Um, Henry King um, wanted to shoot it. Uh, Country road, take me home to yeah. <laughs> the place I belong. The mountains they went of West out Virginia. There to Virginia um, <laughs> and he said... I'm telling you, lads, like, I'll set up the camera and literally everything necessary for the script will be, like, in the knees. And they were like, all right. And it was true. Yeah, it was like a five-mile radius or something. <laughs> they found all the all the locations in, like, yeah. two hours or something. Um, which is, you know, there's so many films that we watch that are set-bound, especially from 1921. Mm. And I think one of my favorite things about this, even compared to the brilliant Johan by Moritz Stiller, which uh, has stuck with me all year. I don't know about you. Oh, uh, no, but, not me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> even compared to those, though, the location shooting is so well done mm. and really anticipates, like, von Stroheim and stuff a few years later. Mm. Um, so, Tolerable David um, is the one that Vleslavod Podovkin cites in his film technique book as the literal platonic example of good filmmaking yeah where all <laughs> techniques are in uh you know in conjunction to deliver like a cinematic experience right and it is it's hokey as fuck it's the film it's like that a, arranges its plastic elements to in the exactly, most satisfactory man. way or whatever ah, yeah ah, you've done you've done your shit <laughs> you can't you can't fake that kind of language um good book guys check it out um, and watch Mother as well, because that's fire. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's such a funny one. And I guess that it's a real film club favourite, supposedly, for like film societies. I guess because there is quite a good copy. Uh, not even a negative, but just like a work print in circulation in America. But apparently it's like, you hear stories of people being forced to watch it in unis in like the 70s, 80s, 90s, and just everyone fucking hating it. But... You know who's top ten it's in? Uh, Rosenbaum. John Ford. Oh, of course it is, man. Of in a, course it is. In a poll in the 60s, he um, yeah named it among his top 10 films of all time. Yeah, rightly so. Uh, he wouldn't be the only one as well. Maybe we can talk about uh, the man soon to be known as John Ford, at that point known as Jack Ford. Sean Sha- Not- O'Fana. <laughs> it's fucked up, man. Yeah. There's not a single Western extant from 1921 that we can view. Not Ford and Harry Carey's last picture. The Wallop <laughs> is what is it's called, called? yeah. <laughs> there's, there's another one called Dangerous Trails, which mm. I really wanted to watch. Um, Hoot Gibson made about 30 features in 1921. Wild. Yeah. And can't watch any of them. Gutted. I would have been so up for it. I'm sure they wouldn't be mad different to the Westerns from 1919 or 1920. <laughs> or, dare I say it, 23 that I've seen. But it still would have been pang. You know, the one that always comes to mind for me is Hellbent, which I just think is great. It's fantastic. Mainly for the um, framing device with um, the sort of Winslow Homer style guy, like yeah. sort of painting, and then it goes into the picture. Mark Cousins would have loved that shit. <laughs> there was one Western uh, that we could that I could maybe talk about for a moment by King Vidor, um, the mm. sort of pretty reactionary Texan filmmaker. 
the man who made the Fountainhead movie, yeah. Yeah, exactly. He also made The Crowd, and like, the cra- a, a film <laughs> that, uh, 1928, so, like, right at the end of the silent period, but, like, a real a Far more significant of... film. Sure. But, yeah, this one, the sky pilot about a preacher in, like, a sort of snowy, sort of rural community... Um, it ends with like the church on fire and a scene that looks a lot like McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I think you'd have mm. liked this one quite a lot, actually. Mm. Uh, otherwise, though, is the only Western I've seen. Yeah, yeah the survival rate is just uh, critically low for these, at least as far as sort of web accessibility, which I guess is quite an important distinction to make because a lot of these you probably could watch in an archive. A lot of them have been lost. The Foxfire, like... Well, I like to think a lot of them are still there, like, just uh, haven't been transferred yet. Mm-hmm. There's still that can somewhere in some archive in some part of the world where we can watch The Wallop. <laughs> <laughs> so, looking at the uh, the top 10 box office hits of 1921, um, besides Orphans of the Storm, um, you can see how much the star system was totally in full swing at this point because every film that is on there is associated with a huge huge individual be that charlie chaplin's the kid which premiered on new year's day 1921 Mm. and kind of set set a filmmaking tone for the whole year or um the you know uh mary pickford films of which has about six extant douglas Fairbanks's the three musketeers very high very high in the list um i didn't Mm. catch that one i think you did didn't you um i sort of what I'm no fan of the Musketeers. I'm a big Richelieu stand, so yeah, I just don't want to see another <laughs> fucking Joker moment. Yeah, I I watched a little bit of it, but not not really. Um, Classic. Yeah, I don't really have anything to say about it. To be honest, I did watch one of Mary Pickford's excellent films, um, The Love Light, where she plays like a oh, a, a lighthouse keeper. Uh, it was sick, man. That also had some great location photography, like, yeah. fuck knows. I guess it was just some, some like, lake or something, though. Yeah. Um, but for, like, coastal um, stuff. Also, like, you know, pretty dramatic. People wanted her to play, like, a very specific sort of role in that time, though. Um, she was famous for, like, yeah, playing, like, a sort of naive girl with, like, big curls, basically. Um, she also played uh, in Little Lord Fauntleroy. Uh, that was, again, one of the biggest films of the year. A dual role in that one. We'll talk about more dual roles later when we talk about Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. Sure where she plays, uh, yeah, the eponymous Little Lord and his mother. Yeah, I <laughs> not much to say about it. I think that role is commemorated in a statue, like on the side of some building. <laughs> That's right, um, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, people went crazy for that shit. <laughs> it's important to note um, Pickford and Fairbanks were a Hollywood star couple, power couple. They were the two biggest stars mm. in Hollywood. They didn't really appear in films together that often. Um, but them two, together with Charlie Chaplin and David Walt Griffith, maker of The Awful Birth of a Nation, they founded United Artists, which was the first independent artist-led production company, as many people will have you believe. Um, everyone was starting production companies at this time, but I think this this was like the title of its day, you know, when they had <laughs> yeah, the title, exactly. the title conference where they had like Daft Punk and Dead Mouse and Kesha all being like, this is so great for artists, this capitalist enterprise is going to change the game. Um, that's kind of what United Artists was. They founded that in like 1918, but no films came out under that banner for quite a few years because it was a bit of a flash in the pan until, although it still 
obviously exist today. Well, I think it was more the case that they were all like locked into sort of existing contracts with, uh, you know, mm. like First National and mm. famous players, Lasky. Yeah. Um, although the Three Musketeers, Orphans of the Storm, and Little Lord Fauntleroy, three of the highest grossing films of the year, all came out on United Artists. Um, Chaplin, I think, was the big one that, like, the kid, for example, came out on First National because he had to fulfil the contract or whatever. Can't wait to talk about the kid, but we're going to keep you waiting, folks. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> we got a lot of less beautiful films to get through before then. Yeah, there, if, if we're talking about stars in this period, there are a few more that we should talk about. 1921 was the, the year of Rudolf Valentino. <laughs> Yeah, the original Latin lover, yeah. Yeah, uh, a terrible actor. <laughs> yeah. a, hands- a handsome man, sure. Nice cheekbones, sure. But the man could not act whatsoever. <laughs> like, if you talk about, like, silent film acting being, like, cheesy or, like, theatrical, like, you fucking wish, man. This guy is, like, um, I don't, he's like a tree or something like that. He's so expressionless. <laughs> When you're that hot, bro, all you need to do is just stand there in a poncho and... Well, I guess this is uh, I guess this is lit- will, literally true. Uh, you will shoot to the top of the box office. See, see June 2021, <laughs> uh, made, by, made by Denis Villeneuve. Um, oh no, but like, fucking so hell. <laughs> okay, you didn't, you didn't watch The Shake, right? No, I didn't watch that film. one. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's an abomination, bro. Mm. It's one of the most racist rape fantasy films I've ever seen. Great. Um, and it made, you know, we were talking about Latlantide mm. um, and how that was so like orientalist and like nasty. You got no fucking idea, bro. Also, sure. uh, so the shake that Valentino plays who adopts a, a European princess, turns out he's European in the end anyway. So Pang. it's all it's, it's all good. Which again <laughs> reminds me of, uh, no, whatever. Um, but then we both watched The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, which was the big film of 1921, directed by Rex Ingram. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that basically made twice as much as any other film this year. It was the Spider-Man. It was the Paw Patrol 2 of 1921. <laughs> yeah, was, exactly. Uh, big literary adaptation. Yeah. Um, I think there was... Before it came out, Rudolf Valentino like wasn't a star, and I think there was also some skepticism that would do that well because of its like mm. war theme. Um, mm. So, Film Daily, for example, had the headline for like um, exhibitors. Uh, Just one question: Is this offered three years too late? The answer to that question is obviously no, because people went fucking crazy for it. Um, there are some, I also read some reviews that were like, oh yeah, like it's a high level melodrama, but the war sequences, it's just too much. <laughs> and it's like, fuck's sake, are you joking? Is like it, the war it... sequences are like literally the only thing this film has to commend itself. Like, yeah, I completely, um, I completely with the you. the sort of prophetic sequences, which by no means rival, like, sort of continental fantastical filmmaking, but at least offer something in terms of, like, creative um, sort of visual uh, work, like a mechanical okay, so you're dragon, t- you're talking about the, the dragon, of the yeah. rider, stuff like that. Okay, this bit... It's not which that comes, crazy, though. This bit, which comes halfway through the film, is 
such a dud when the four horsemen of the apocalypse turn <laughs> and even you spent an hour or half an hour if you're watching it on double speed as you fucking should yeah being like oh when are the four horsemen of the apocalypse <laughs> and they turn up in the wrong order a eh? so that um death is is the last one yeah Jesus. come on guys the dragon has nothing on the stuff on the Dante's Inferno film from 1913, which is available on YouTube in a glorious copy. Nice tints, looks amazing. Really disturbing, scary vision of hell. This is not that. This is a film about how war is a tragedy for the aristocrats just as much as you fucking proles. Like, it's about the the richest family in the Argentine. <laughs> yeah, who, this uh... is what I wanted to say. <laughs> That is the worst thing about it. It's fucking Nazi literatures of the Americas. Like, mm. oh, like the... Mm. Yeah, I... <sighs> truly unsympathetic. And, yeah, a similar sentiment to the one in Orphans of the Storm. Just, like, reactionary, anti-populist. Obviously, yeah. populism is, like, a problematic concept. I'm talking... You know. It's just, like, some oligarch shit. Like, it's fucked up. Yeah. And people were backing it. Yeah. This was another, like, I don't go to the cinema to read, say, a lot of contemporary audiences uh, or a a lot of contemporary straw men that people like to talk about. (laughs) Whereas, you know, fucking hell, the intertitles in this were just skull-crushing, like, the dialogue (laughs) as well. But, yeah, this sort of Bosch shit at the end, it was kind of cool, but it wasn't, like, it had nothing on intolerance even from five years previous. Like, it didn't look good. It wasn't stirring didn't fill me with the with a a pro-war fervor (laughs) it's not a pro-war film it's not a pro-war film like the last (laughs) image is like uh stat like saving private ryan style like war grave site and it's like yeah war is bad it you know for the rich But it has, it has nothing of the analytical it's bent of Jacques, which was made three years earlier. Yeah. But it made a lot more money than that. Anyway, that's Rudolf Valentino. He may have been poisoned. Um, he's got a bit of an interesting story. There's loads of bits in the parades gone by of him like begging every European director who comes over to like take him back with them because he hated working in America. So. <laughs> oh my God. That's so sad. I know. On the topic of working in America, maybe we can quickly talk about a few films that explicitly explore sort of labour relations in the States mm. in 1921, especially as a tonic to some of the more sort of reactionary ones that we've been talking about. Sure. Um, one uh, that Kevin Brownlow's uh, book behind Mask of Innocence brought to my attention is called The New Disciple. Mm. This is a decidedly left-wing film, a, a lost film, I should say. Um, from a Seattle company about uh, unions um, made in like a very sort of anti-union post-war climate. Mm. Brownlow makes it sound sort of formally shonky um, and it's a shame we sort of can't judge it for ourselves. Um, another writer... We've got to remake um, it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The new, uh, the newer disciple or... <laughs> the 13th disciple would be a crazy hard title for a film. <laughs> Oh, it's so true. Okay, um, I'm going to read a passage from um, this book, Working Class Hollywood, Silent Film and the Shaping of Class in America, 
by writer Stephen J. Ross. Uh, I think it's from the late 90s. So he says, um, presenting its message within the framework of a love story between John McPherson, a factory worker's son, and Mary Fanning, a factory owner's daughter, the new disciple shows how worker cooperatives could restore the harmony between employer and employee that was shattered by wartime capitalist profiteering. During the course of the romance between its two class-crossed lovers, the six-reel film, that's, that means it's really long, by the way, um, repeatedly challenges the anti-Bolshevik, anti-Labour paranoia of Hollywood films by presenting radicals, closed shops, and worker cooperatives as agents of justice and portraying open shops, red squads, and the American plan as loathsome efforts to undermine democratic values. Uh, just a little Ooh. bit of clarification on some of those terms. Um, open shops are workplaces without a union mm-hmm. um, and the American plan was like a anti-union movement like in the immediate post-war years where um, yeah unions were yeah seen as like a Bolshevik scheme or whatever. Oh I wonder why this film is lost man. <laughs> yeah exactly uh, the film apparently ends with the farmers and laborers forming a co-op and buying the factory at hand. Come on. Ross also writes about another 1921 film called The Contrast and I don't know if this film actually exists because <laughs> I literally cannot find anything else about it. It turns up in one other um, source like a sort of encyclopedia but I'm mm. not I could only see like the Google preview of that so I couldn't even like sort of cross-reference it properly so yeah I really don't know like IMDB um, it's directed by um, Guy Headland. well you're saying this is um, like crypto film historiography or something like that yeah exactly man <laughs> exactly. We, we should we should do that um, man. <laughs> Well, I mean, this literally sounds like it. So apparently it's set in West... It was set in West Virginia, um, same as Tolerable David, Mm. and concerns uh, an episode during, like, this real-life decade-long labour conflict between mine workers and owners, uh, known as the West Virginia Coal Wars or Mm. Mine Wars. Um, Apparently the style was more, like, sort of social realist... um, I'm going to quote again from that Ross book uh, because this is literally the only information I can find about it. But again, it sounds intriguing. Uh, the contrast corrects these distortions, um, those of like sort of reactionary films, for a mixture of dramatic plotting and documentary scenes. Relying on techniques perfected by his mentor, D.W. Griffith, director Guy Headland uses juxtaposition to portray the causes of worker discontent cutting back and forth between scenes of the lavish lives of mine owners and the poverty and dangers faced by their employees. The contrast also adopts Griffith's raw emotionalism and builds audience empathy by evoking anger against employers. I mean, it sounds super Soviet. Uh, Yeah. So both these films are produced outside of Hollywood, right? Is quite a big Yes, exactly. Exactly. Regional filmmaking. Yeah, I'm not sure if I said um, The New Disciple was from Seattle. Mm. I... Again, can't find any information about the contrast. I guess it was shot on location. It doesn't sound like they build huge sets to make a production like this, but... (laughs) Yeah. uh... It's not Cinderella, man. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, John Ford in Hawaii or whatever. (laughs) Both sound hard. I hope that, you know, seeing Europa this year filled me with hope that other shit like this could be unearthed. Definitely. Although it sounds like... They got destroyed. (laughs) 
by the man. One other film that sort of fits within this category is um, The Jungle, Upton Sinclair in like 1921 and 22. Kevin Brownlow writes about this in that book again. But um, he's, he describes how Sinclair was involved in attempts to get um, the 1914 adaptation of his book from uh, like 10 years earlier or whatever, uh, like back in cinemas. And yeah, Brownlow describes how these attempts were frustrated by various reasons. And ultimately the film was just like destroyed in a lamp <laughs> um, through like negligence. But yeah, that was another big uh, sort of, labor relations film negligence like whoops i spilled acid on <laughs> yeah exactly whoops i dropped it in the fire yeah all of these films just tell a completely different story though to the um the ones we we see in the other films i guess like chaplin and the comedians are the ones um that maybe sort of gesture towards uh like different like social situations the most apart from like Lewis Weber or something yeah. like that who we will talk about in a minute well modern times even it's just a joke in that you know it's a it's a pretext for like comedic stuff mm. as opposed to being mm. hardcore you know sure I mean that was quite a lot later though one more thing it's also definitely worth noting that Oscar Michaud the sort of pioneering African-American filmmaker in um in this period made two films that year uh one called the gunslouse mystery and the other i think called the hypocrite both of these are lost the majority of his work is lost and occupies like an, a very curious place in um sort of film history in america it's quite a nice uh, restoration of within our gates a few years ago so do check yes, that out listeners that's, r- that's right um on a very dark note, also, it's worth noting that this was also the year of the Tulsa massacre. Yes. When, like, a black neighborhood was razed to the ground by a racist mob. Mm-hmm. And. Was it, was Michaud yeah, yeah, I mean, working in Tulsa? No. I feel mm. like he. I mean, he grew up as, he like, a homesteader, in the South, right? It? Yeah, that's right. And yeah. Then, um, and then he moved to a city I can't remember, or I can't remember. Um, again, like, he is a figure that deserves his own episode, but, um, and again, these films are lost, so we're not going to dwell on it too long, but you have to acknowledge that these films are being made and playing to, like, large audiences. Like, he'd, like, book out theatres for black audiences to watch these films, and they would, like, sell out and stuff. Mm. Climate suits my clothes. 
So there's one filmmaker I'd like to talk about um, whose work I really enjoyed and of checking out her stuff prior to this as well. I only came across her in another Kevin Brownlow book. So shout out that guy. Um, Behind the Mask of Innocence, which is about social films or films that sort of reflected the reality of the cinema going public in the silent era. Yeah. Um, Which is a really good book. A really interesting chapter about censorship and Hayes, uh, who would be... uh, grandfathered into the position of chief censor in America the year after this uh, mm-hmm. and the film film distribution landscape was a bit different as a result uh, none of that crazy shit that you see in Intolerance um, or in this film what I would say just on that really quickly is that mm. reading these like trade journals for 1921 like you do get a very clear sense of how censorship is sort of creeping in state by state there are sort mm. of you know headlines every week where like a different place like people are getting up in arms about film impropriety um but yeah it was the next year where that like really and in reality like much later that actually became a real thing anyway sorry let's talk about i'm talking about lois weber's the blot Mm. uh, a fine title (laughs) as almost as good or like on the same level as the goat and the boat and the kid <laughs> they could still you know much like today as well you know the best american film of the year was a film about a rooster uh that's cry macho and the blot um well it's about a chicken actually not a rooster it's about genteel poverty <laughs> that's exactly what it's about yeah the blot on society is that, is that um a common laborer is is afforded a greater wage than the hardest mental strain or something like that yeah exactly uh, which Come is on, which man. is nonsense but um this film is cool right it's about um the, the son of, of of a very wealthy professor very sort of up because it's proper like it's a film largely set in a university mm. in like way before like university was a thing that was encouraged like more than the upper class mm-hmm. to participate in right Literally, like, you know, there's a famous Harold Lloyd... Oh, no, there's a famous Buster Keaton film, College, from a couple of years later, and it's a big genre. Or, like, that Futurama episode. I feel like I'm always talking about Futurama on this show. <laughs> but, you know, that picture of college is, like, what it's like mm. in the 20s in America. Um, Man, we anyway, went the... to see... When we saw... Um... Oh, fuck. What was that awful, drier film we saw at the um, Kennington Bioscope? The, the Bride of Glomdoll. Yeah, the Come on, man. sucked. Anyway. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> um, that had like a sort of college short before it. Yeah. Like, the name yeah, it did, didn't it? Yeah. But yeah, it's a very clear picture of the sort of collegiate spirit in uh, America at that time. But it's as, it's as escapist at the time or like as like exotic as like showing the shake or something sure. like that, right? One really cool thing about the block before I get too carried away. I did think this was a cool film. I don't think it quite like anticipates like Frank Borzaghi or whatever, or like really fits into the genre that Kevin Brownlow is trying mm. to establish it within. But despite it being like a sick film made by a woman, of which there's quite a few, um, I guess we'll get to that later anyway. Besides having like a lot of cool animal action, which is a big theme in 1921 in the dramas, in the war films, and in the comedies, a lot of cute cats and dogs. <laughs> this film was pioneering for being actually really good as a portal into the past 
into seeing what life was really like in 1921 because this was the only film that was shot in an actual house mm -hmm. because Lois Weber was instrumental in developing this technology, this lighting technology that allowed, like, without this crazy flood lighting, like, insane. I don't, I have no idea how they lit this shit, especially when it's like you see the, you see the lights and it's like tin drums and stuff and it's like refractors. Ridiculous. Anyway, this film is actually shot in like normal houses yeah. in 1921. Yeah, for sure. Which is a crazy, crazy element to it. And is like very striking, I think, compared to everything else we watch. For America, which is either on like huge mounted sets or just like shot in a day on the street and there's no real middle ground at all. For sure. The interiors, are, there's nothing like it. Mm. You alluded to one of her earlier films. I think that was Suspense oh. from... Suspense so good. Uh, I clocked yeah. it. It was also in. It was in the story of film. Mm. But yeah, whoa, what a movie! Man. Yeah, that's more interesting for me, uh, like formally and the subject matter. Um, it has like a cool, like four-part split-screen sort of bit. Mm. It's got that crazy cross-cutting. It's two years before Birth of a Nation, and it's got like yeah, know, wild a mad approach to editing. Mm. It's crazy because at that point in time, like. It really was about just super unsophisticated framings for comedies and really quite unsophisticated framings for like art films as well with mm. like film art as like a genre of like staged plays and stuff. It was just like dead. This was really revolutionary. I guess by that point in time, she was like very established as a female filmmaking pioneer. Mm. Um, and yeah she is mainly associated with that sort of like social film as um, Kevin Brownlow calls them in, in that book. A whataboutery film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. There are other cool films made by women this year, by the way. Um, and I guess the preconception... As there are most years. Yeah, the, the preconception in, in the early days of Hollywood certainly is that like women were mainly writers um sure. if, if anything on the production side but there are lots of exceptions to that idea in this year. i probably won't get to tell this story again because we're not going back in time but anita Luz, mm. one of the first hollywood screenwriters um was just like a girl who really liked going to see movies in like no oh, i can't remember somewhere provincial and she wrote a letter to one of the producers at the time being like oh who writes the stories for your movies like it would be such a wonderful thing to grow up to do or whatever yeah and the producer is like oh shit i've never thought about that like having people write the stories as opposed to just making them up <laughs> yeah. as we go on and she wrote like um gentlemen prefer blondes and stuff like that but started with her this has also reminded me that that um, mary pickford one that i mentioned mm. um that was written and directed by her friend um francis marion uh, perhaps we can also talk about Grace Cunard. We're about to hail Netflix for the first time in a while on film Grace. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Crazy. So, yeah, I think we first saw her film Daughter of the Law as part of their um, Pioneers series, mm. um, which uh, highlights like early films by women. I think there was also one of black directors as well. I see yeah, that's right. But yeah. I don't think that's on there at the moment for whatever reason. Anyway, um, Fucked up. she plays a uh, IRS officer <laughs> who gets sent out like into the mountains. I think it's set in Tennessee um, mm -hmm. 
to yeah to meet these like moonshiners. She came up working with uh, Francis Ford, John Ford's brother, which is That's like right. pretty interesting apprenticeship in the sort of nineteen tens. Um, Probably wasn't at the time, but it is for us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a tolerable film, isn't it? The Daughter of the Law. Yeah, I liked it. It has some cool cross-cutting, people riding motorbikes, like, along, like, dirt paths. Mm. Um, the copy we watched, the copy on Netflix, I think it's, like, Kino Classics or whatever, is um, really peg. Uh, Splendid stuff, man, yeah. honestly. And, you know, the tinting and that. Like, obviously, at the time, these all of these films would have looked peg. I feel like this is a point mm. that Kevin Brownlow makes that we judge them on, like awful prints a lot of the time um but this one had got the 4k treatment or whatever and it looked peng and that probably influenced my sort of viewing of it shout out grace kunod not as much of a fordist tyrant as uh alice guy blache who is sort of the central figure of this uh restoration project but um yeah i quite enjoyed daughter of the law it's a zippy two reeler, <laughs> which is pretty much going to become the focus of this show now. Exactly. Going man. forth, not just this episode, this whole thing. I'm just watching two reelers now because it's the perfect format, <laughs> especially on double speed, bro. You yeah. can clear them. You can watch like a hundred films in a day. It's fire. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, this was for... the year of the first uh, Laurel and Hardy film. Although uh, it wasn't a Laurel and Hardy film. It was like a sort of Stan Laurel film. Yeah, exactly. The Lucky Dog Um where he plays, yeah, like a down and out guy that's, blah, 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 you know, yeah. they're also <laughs> extraordinarily formulaic. Those, films. Yeah. Um, that's the point though of these two reelers that they could just churn them out. For those that don't know, we're talking about like twenty minutes of a film there. Yeah. Um. About about yeah eighteen hundred feet. But, yeah. <laughs> um. The Lucky Dog has these sort of wavy um, on-screen effects that I've just remembered. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, like, sort of Looney Tunes-style, like, hot stars going around the head when he gets mm. kicked out of the door. Um, and, yeah, like, double exposure for, like, disorientation. And, you know, it's at least, like, doing something. <laughs> it's like Heat, the Lucky Dog. You're, like, waiting for them to link up the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> and then when they do it's a bit it's not that sick really it would take years for them to perfect the uh the chuckle brothers act that they are so beloved for for sure for sure at this point it was literally not a thing and they've both been start like performing in films for like a decade or whatever i'd say this is actually a sort of liminal period for film comedy where mm. up to that point comedy features hadn't really been a thing. I think mm. Chaplin starred in his first one in 1914, but then he wasn't in another one until this year, I think. Yeah. Um, Harold Lloyd also made his first feature film this year. Um, Fatty Arbuckle was making Bear because he basically Yeesh. brought all these guys up. We will talk about him a little bit more. Buster Keaton didn't make a feature, I think, for another three or four years or something. He barely made any. Yeah. yeah. It didn't really, you know. Yeah. yeah. It was go go hard or go home when Keaton hit the features, you know. <laughs> this is, though, largely the age of the two-reeler. Um, and there are a bunch of great ones to talk about, as well as some features, which we'll get to. Um, which one do you want to talk about first? I want to start with the unsung hero of this whole shit, right? Max Linder, 
who was a French a Frenchman. Are you down? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Uh, I'd never heard of this guy again until uh, reading the parade's gone by and shit. Real tragic figure, you know. Yeah, of course. This was his first film in America. He was a Frenchman who'd, uh, you know, got really successful in the music halls and on screen. And, you know, he was the real father to the style of all of the people we just talked about. He did make a film with Gans after this, which looks really good. I'd really like to see. But this uh, Seven Years Bad Luck mm. was his first feature, first American film, 60 minutes long. It's about a, uh, a rich man who breaks a mirror. There's an unbelievable like mirror gag, the mirror gag. There's yeah, also exactly. about 20 minutes, 20 minutes of Chaplin's The Circus is just lifted straight out of this film. Fire. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he breaks a mirror and then he has a lot of bad luck. And yeah. the, uh, the woman, he wants to marry him. It hangs in the balance, you know. But uh, what an entertaining pellicula this was. Like, fucking hell. I was watching it at work. I was laughing my head off, man. It was sensational. As I, I had so much respect for Max Linder watching this shit. Mm. I think, like, it's sort of the same with Fatty Arbuckle. Like, watching the films of these guys. No, whoa, like... whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. I'm not trying to equate them. Or Why did make you have to condemn this, condemn this podcast to hell by bringing up such an awful man? <laughs> okay. he, was, he was innocent, free fatty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He was literally, he was literally innocent, but he was innocent. ain't nobody, it's ain't, so ain't nobody, ain't nobody ready to have that conversation. But he was, he was literally proven innocent. Okay, um, but all but, I knew about that man for the first twenty-eight years of my life was that he'd like killed someone. Yeah, and, you know, the first like real awful Hollywood scandal, which was on the front pages every day in the newspapers for half of 1921 seemingly yeah well i mean it happened in september of 1921 and yeah really dominated like film discourse for the rest of the year and shaped the sort of direction of um film censorship um or the censuring of film sort of society definitely characterizing film as like a deviant or like evil force exactly the world you know um he's no michael barrymore man you know i'll say that i'll say that (laughs) um yeah i mean i knew that max linda had like murder suicided his like young wife uh before i watched seven years bad luck so it sort of takes some of the sheen off it but you know (sighs) nah i yeah sort of fucks it up for me a little bit yeah fair enough man jeez Tumultuous year, 1921. It's not all fun and games in the comedy world. Mm. <laughs> no. <Nuh-uh. laughs> um, the three main guys are Charlie Chaplin. You know, couldn't leave the house. He was so popular. Harold Lloyd. Um, he'd had like an extremely successful uh, comedy character called Lonesome Luke. That was sort of oh, like yeah. a Chaplin ripoff. He had just like come up with his own character uh the glasses character is Harold Lloyd but he's wearing glasses um I think the character is literally called Harold Lloyd as well great um and he just like ends up and he's like he's like a normal like clerical guy like an of who just like ends up in like mad situations um who ends up on a building site yeah yeah exactly who ends up in peril 
He's got a sort of gravitational pull towards eye beams. <laughs> yeah. Um, he and yeah, and Buster Keaton, who, as I said, wasn't making Last but not least. features at this time, but made like some of the, I mean, probably my favourite comedy shorts of the year. Um, the Playhouse in particular, I think, is just brilliant. Mm. Where, yep. <laughs> wouldn't be my wouldn't be my pick of the year. Nah, 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 nah. Fantastic I think, um, obviously, I, based on what I've just been saying, I'm, like, very easily entertained by, like, special effects in these 21 films. <laughs> so when Buster Keaton plays every character in a theatre, then I'm, like, yeah, sort of jokes. Um, as far as, like, the pra- uh, sort of physical comedy goes, it's definitely The viewer not, had just uh, learned to look, but could they really see themselves? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I've, I've got, got my. I had shit. my. Yeah. <laughs> I had my Adam Curtis down at the start of the year. Here comes the cousins. No, I can't do it. I can't do the lilting. More sleazy. <laughs> yeah, come on, tell me some good shorts then. Um, I think the goat is fantastic. Yeah. Not just on a stunts level, but for you know, for Stoneface, um, a very creative man. A man who really had the vision, you know, with what you could do with the camera. Mm. And I think there's a few moments in The Goat and the Boat, both from 1921, that really uh, have stuck in my career since I've seen them, you know. That cross-section of the boat, yeah. which we would later see in, uh, had a kind of Popeye vibe to me. Popeye Altman, not the cartoons. Sure. Super tactile. I mean, that's um, like a sort of quintessential quality for all of these screen comedians the sort of tactility of what they're doing but in that one yeah um and that's like a very set bound one as well you know so many of these are like them like sort of running around the street or whatever you know incorporating the built environment into their stories yes Um, this one i will not deny that (laughs) this one is like yeah as you said the cross section of the boat and he's giving it the old whoa like (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, there's lots of like splashing water and shit. It is cool. Um, you I, fell asleep while we were watching this. Can I just say? I've seen it enough times, man. Don't yeah, worry. Don't, worry. don't be concerned. And the goat has um, you know what? It has better train stunts than the general. It has a better train moment than the general. Oh, remind me what that is. When he's sitting on the cow catcher and the the camera's right in front and the the train stops like dead in front of the camera, you know, and he's just like sitting there reading the newspaper a while. We watched it's, this one so, so long it's ago. Unbelievable, man. Like, yeah. man. Yeah. Sounds very gifable. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think I, Lord knows I'm not making that gift, but I think, you know, someone can It definitely existed. Um another good Buster Keaton gag from this period is in uh, Hard Luck when um uh where he spends a whole film trying to kill himself. I think there's also a Harold Lloyd film where that's the premise. Do you remember which one that is? I didn't see either of those, but it sounds very up my street. <laughs> um, <laughs> and at the end of it, he jumps off a diving board <laughs> and smashes uh, like through uh, like the concrete ground. Like I have the, seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then it's like sometime later or ever and he like climbs out of the hole like wearing some like traditional like oriental clothes yeah, that's right. with like an Asian yeah. family mm. um and like you know it's so stupid but 
It is a classic that's, sight gag. Or that's whatever. movie magic. Yeah, right yeah exactly. <laughs> um, let's quickly talk about uh, Harold Lloyd a little bit more. Um, we alluded to his sort of uh, architectural acrobatics. Um, <laughs> okay, never, so never weaken is the one for this. In Never Weaken, I gasped about seven times, man. I was totally like on the edge of my seat, even though it like it can't have been that real. But like, oh, so there's still, a yeah. yeah. So you're <laughs> you're talking about like the it looks like he's super high up, like dangling on yeah. Yeah. Like an I-beam on like yeah. a crane or whatever. Um, it brought me back to watching Fantasia 2000 in the cinema when I was seven years old. <laughs> so Brownlow made a documentary uh, called Harold Lloyd, the Third Genius, which is on uh, YouTube. Uh, Third comes right after second, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was Such like 89 or whatever. They should have um, called it Harold Lloyd, the Pornographer Genius. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but in this they show it's very demystifying actually but they show how um, I think Hal Roach's studio Mm. um, or like this lot that they had he was like the producer um, Mm. was on like uh... absolute bastard by the way yeah great Um... (laughs) I assumed he was such a nice guy from this documentary (laughs) (laughs) he's like a hundred years old in it like and then every time he said something, it's like, of course, this person remembers it differently. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I need to see that. I need to see that. It was made by Brownlow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, that documentary is very demystifying, showing how they were basically on this hill and would like sort of quite cleverly line up the, uh, these like sort of facades with the, mm. the background, uh, the buildings mm. in the background to like, yeah, to execute these shots. That kind of Trump lawyer stuff was going crazy and you never notice it. Well, exactly, and man. It's, it's so um, convincing. I guess because of the quality of the image that we're looking at as well. Like, You're looking at invisible art there, that. folks, you know. Yeah. Seriously. In a, you know, Roy Anderson's cool, but like these ones are like 50 mm. feet high and shit, you know. <laughs> Um, I do is good when he's got to look after the baby. That's a good one. Great. Yeah, I mean they um, just churn them out. That's the point at this time. It has like, the, there are so the, many that they would. I do doing. has the. I do has the gag that I. It's the sort of shit I used to got made me go crazy when I was a kid or whatever. Where it's like, um, Harold Lloyd overhears his uh his beloved say like oh i want you to marry me to her brother or whatever and he's like really freaked oh, out, and yeah. runs out he's like oh my god what the fuck is this shit and then like he runs out and it turns out that her brother just became a minister yeah. ordained and she wants her she wants him to marry her and harold lloyd in a ceremony right and that's that's a crazy gag and they did done it in a silent film like and you know at the point at which she <sighs> discovers this at the end, where he's like slowly being lifted down from real high up. <laughs> it's great though, you know, the Idol Class by Charlie Chaplin. Is, oh yeah, uh, so I mean, talk about throwaways. I rate it, but like, it, it is a throwaway. Uh, it's where, not. Like, it's not the kid, but sometimes the throwaway is better than 
the Phil Graves, you know. Sure. But okay, uh, let me illustrate the way, the extent to which it is a throwaway, right? So in 1918, um, he made a short film, never distributed, called How to Make Movies, which is just them like bumming around on the lot, like, and he's like, oh, here's the makeup department. And it's him like touching someone's hair and, you know, great. It's not the, it's not the. And it's like, great. Jabbing a pin in them and then being like, Um, it's, it's actually really, really worthwhile, worth watching that one. It's the lunch with Jay-Z of 1918. Anyway, they, they have the same footage of the like golf gag in that, right? And yeah. it's just because it's just there on their on their lot. They're like, oh, oh yeah, we can so just like fun. have like a joke, like a like five minute bit just like on the golf course. It's like Curb or something. It's exactly like Curb. Yeah, I was going to say that as well. But the the golfing action is way funnier. Like I was like in pieces watching this at your house the other day. Yeah, sure. I thought it was hilarious. Mm. And also, you know, the Owen Hathaway book. The Chaplin Machine is really worth reading. If you like reading, like, class super text into Charlie Chaplin movies, which is obviously, mm. you know, a very uh, fertile field, um, The Idol Class is one of the good ones for that, I think. Because sure. it does have a laugh with it and treat it seriously and represent it in, you know, unmistakable ways. However, we're about to get to the big hitter of 1921. The film you've all been waiting for. Probably the only film that's actually worth seeing from 1921 in America. Well, I mean, no, it I feels it... harsh, but it's no, also it sort back. of feels true, it doesn't it? If we ha- if we <laughs> weren't doing this podcast, I definitely would have said that was the case. But then I would never would have seen Tolerable David or The Blot. Yeah, I mean, The Blot, I can take or leave it. Fuck it. Tolerable the David, only... I can do the same. <laughs> the only film from 1921 you will ever see in a cinema again <laughs> from America, I reckon. <laughs> like guaranteed you were saving it for ages and ages i was like have you watched the kid all year i've been waiting for sam to watch the kid and he watched it yesterday yeah i watched it very recently did you cry at the stillness of the camera oh, okay yeah so the- <laughs> so the intertitle that comes up at the beginning a picture with a smile and perhaps a tear bang on I don't know. That's that's exactly what it is. (laughs) So the story goes that Chaplin went to like some vaudeville show uh, to see um, Jackie Coogan's dad like do some like weird like dancing bit that he did. And then afterwards, Jackie Coogan, this like four year old kid, like ran out and was like. It's important to know that Chaplin was also like the kid in an act when he was a young man. Sure. Much like Buster Keaton as well. Yeah. Um, For the Freud heads out there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So the kid runs out, casts a spell over everyone with his, like, charm or his, like, weird four-year-old charm. I cannot imagine it being in this situation. (laughs) (laughs) He's not like, um, you know, (laughs) yeah, how how good could he have been? He must have been fucking amazing. Anyway, the next day, um, like Chaplin reads that Coogan is being signed up by um, some other company to star in films. And he's like, fuck, why didn't I think of that? That kid would have been so good. Yada, yada. Turns out it's the dad, not the kid. So like straight away, he's like, we need to fucking make a movie with that kid stat. And, you know, it 
aside from the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, it was like the biggest film of the year. People went crazy for it. I saw it at End of the Road just a few weeks ago. A few weeks it's ago. <laughs> three months ago. Yeah, that's what I like it's, it. you know, it's a lasting classic. I mean, Chaplin, like, this is his first sort of like proper feature. Mm-hmm. And it's the start of some sort of canon. Definitely wasn't the start of anything for like people who are watching his films all around the world at this time. But, you know, people can't really be bothered with watching his shorts mm-hmm. most of the time. People usually start with the kid. And it's, you know, that straight heartfelt shit that City Lights is all about that people consider that, you know, like it's just it's so effective. Yeah, I mean, it's extremely sentimental as well. Um, <laughs> okay, that, yeah, that's another word for it. Like, sure. The score is going crazy as well. I think it's important to note, like, he did all the music and it's all part of, like, his vision for it. Well, Sam, he didn't quite do all of the music because what it actually was was him standing in an office with an arranger and he was just, like, walking around. Like, God, it must have been unbearable, but also beautiful melodies. He's just walking around going, like... And here it goes. And like, you're watching this film. This film has like, what I mean, though. It's, it's so like, like two pieces of music for an hour. Like. But it's, <laughs> yeah. it fucking works, you know. You just listen to the same melody like half an hour. He knows what he wants. Like, he's Not... doing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He was a genius. <laughs> yeah. Straight up. There's the no other word for it. Genius. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But it's important. It's important to note, right? The actual stylistic hallmarks of Chaplin, which he had like totally built up at this stage. It wasn't like a foray into feature filmmaking that, like, where he'd like tried to make a different kind of film. It just suits the story, right? You got to have five minutes of spaghetti. You got to have the <laughs> ten-minute dream sequence. But oh no, it's pancakes, not spaghetti. Sorry, I always do that. When we watched the Gold Rush the other day, I was like so fucked up that it was bread rolls instead of potatoes. I had to message yeah. <laughs> so fucked up. But um yeah, you know, the pancake stuff. The dream sequence is is the best bit where everything's a bit elevated. It is definitely the best bit. Anyway, he adopts a kid. There's a kid, there's an abandoned kid and he looks after it. That's the story of the film. Oh we yeah. We yeah, didn't yeah. get to that. And there's some shenanigans with, <laughs> yeah. with the heart. When they get separated, it's deep. And then there's a magnificent dream sequence that ends the film, which is, yeah. you know, Fellini, eat your fucking heart out, mate. It's, it's so sure. good. For sure. Great comparison. Sorry, just on that point of, of like the kid, like just sort of extending out of itself. This is the, the reason why Harold Lloyd made his first feature this year, A Sailor Made Man, mm. where um, I think it was originally going to be a two-reeler. And then they just like, you know, ended up filming like more gags. And then it ended up being like a four reeler, which is still shorter than the kid, but definitely longer than a short film or like a non feature film for that period. Yeah, basically, the kid, I feel like it was just a little bit too saccharine for me um, or how I was feeling at the time when I watched it, uh, which I think probably factored in quite heavily. Um, you had COVID at the time, man. It's, <laughs> I get you. It's okay. Yeah, uh, but some of the comedy sequences are obviously classic. The timing is paying. The Tramp was like such an established character by this point in time um, right. that, you know, it's like a perfect performance or whatever. Um, yeah, it's just not my favourite of the Chaplains that we've watched. Uh, you know, we watched The Gold Rush recently. 
and you know that is mad different that, yeah. like yeah at least you didn't watch my boy the the other jackie coogan film made about six months after this it <laughs> yeah, doesn't have sure. doesn't have charlie chaplin in it and it's way when you worse got a cash cow like jackie you gotta you gotta milk him for all he's worth my boy was the same uh yeah but also um one thing i think we forgot to say actually is the music that we've been discussing in these films um mm. obviously they would have like had scores at the time to a, an accompanist and stuff like that but i guess we're talking about like in the when was it like the mid 60s that he sort of like added music in like a formal like uh way to like the the copies that that circulated so the reissues because yeah. unlike Keaton, who was like quite reticent to like re-release his stuff. Um, Harold Lloyd, his stuff got quite popular on TV, but Chaplin was like constantly re-releasing his stuff in the cinema. Mm. Yeah, in in arguably better versions. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The Gold Rush with the narrator is sick. I yeah, think. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's a crazy sort of remediation of um of their work. I I feel like we could have a whole episode about these guys, but um yeah, another time. Hey, anytime, man. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, from a major work to an uh, unbelievably major work, <laughs> uh, let's talk about Manhattan. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I tried to get this one in earlier, but I think it is actually quite a good place to end the episode. Oh, we've got to talk about the, the rare bit fiend as well. Fucking hell. Oh, shit. Yeah, let's, let's do, do that, that. first. <laughs> so that's this cartoonist called Winsor McKay, who was sort of an animation pioneer, and he made three films based on his cartoon series Dreams of a Rare Bit Fiend in 1921. And yeah, the concept of this cartoon is that this couple like have cheese dreams. And then, yeah, this like sort of flights of fancy. My favourite one was definitely uh, The Flying House, which uh, there's a card in the middle that's like, for everybody watching's attention, like this uh, rendering of the galaxy is astronomically correct. For educational purposes or some shit like that. It's like, yeah, okay. They're really fucking proud of that shit. That's like James Cameron, though. Like, I spent 10 years studying the universe to make Avatar. Yeah, yeah, great. (laughs) I don't know. Very charming animation style, though. Oh, it's a great time for A great concept. Yeah. Bet it syncs up nicely with uh, some Scarlet Begonias or something like that, you know. (laughs) Manhattan, slightly different prospect. Directed by two guys, Paul Strand, mainly remembered as a photographer. Mm-hmm. There's a cool photograph of, uh, I think, called Wall Street mm-hmm. um, from 1915, which is like sort of modernistic and abstract. And Charles Sheeler, mainly remembered as a painter of these like sort of abstract sort of cityscapes. It's a sort of city symphony, isn't it? Um, framed with um, the poem Manhattan by mm-hmm. um, Walt Whitman. Mm-hmm. Big up, good poet. Yeah, it's uh, good poem. it's wavy. It is. It's not. <laughs> it's not that wavy. It's not yeah, that it's wavy. Not wavy. <laughs> yeah. It's not. You know, it, it really is just like stock footage of like. It's a Warhol film, but like without. It's that Warhol film, but without the you know formal madness to it. If sure. it was, if it was four hours long, hell yeah, I'd be down to watch Manhattan. <laughs> but as it stands. I struggle to remember. The Berlin Symphony of the City is way better. Doesn't compare. We'll, we'll get to sure. that in a few years. Haha. <laughs> in like six years, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, the fact that that is the most avant-garde film 
or surviving film from America in 1921 is a bit of an indictment for me. Uh, it says a lot. That's why they were so shook, though, of like um, Caligari when they watched it. They're like, this cubist film, <laughs> this futurist film. This like, film just doesn't make any sense. Or... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I felt like I was being lied to for the whole film. <laughs> what? And then they just twist the ending. <laughs> oh. There's a great quote so um, in the like press release for The Golem where it's like, uh, I'm going to read it. <laughs> great movie, that. The Golem, or How He Came Into the World, yeah. by what, so, Paul Wegener, is that? Yeah. Fantastic so stuff. So it says, perhaps if you played the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, you'll better be able to judge whether or not you can put over the Golem. If they liked the former, they will be interested in this. And on the other hand, if they did not like Caligari, you can promise them a different novelty in the Golem. <laughs> You've, you've got so far. God, the ent- the enterprisingness of the way everything about cinema was uh, presented in 1921 is a really lasting thing. That's all over the world, you know. Definitely, do. Everyone felt like they had that new thing to show you. Yeah. Whatever that may be, even if it's tolerable, David. We have so much to look forward to in 1922. I've loved watching about 80 films from 100 years ago this year. And I'm going to beat it next year. Straight well, up. exactly, man. I think the survival rate is going to jump up every year that we go. Um, I'm afraid so. Better start that Patreon. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> um, I think our next episode is going to come out at the beginning of next year. But we're going to be looking back at the cinema of 2021, way back when. Can't wait for that promising young woman rewatch. Um, thanks for joining us on this 100 years ago part three complete. Uh, mm. Happy Christmas, Sam. Happy Christmas, dude. Happy Christmas, dear listener. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. See you in 2022.